Are you interested in making your own podcast? If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. It's free. They have creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or your computer. Anchor will then distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcast, and many more. You guys can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. And in fact, I'm using Anchor and I love it. If you're interested, download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hey, everybody, this is Heidi St. John. Welcome to the Heidi St. John podcast. Today is Monday, March 2nd. Today is Mailbox Monday, and we're going to have a go at a whole bunch of things today. We're going to talk about politics and the Enneagram. Oh, my goodness. Stick around. I think you're going to be encouraged. So thanks for tuning in today, you guys. I want to say thank you to everybody who turned out in Nashville, Tennessee this last weekend. It's just such a thrill. It really is for me to meet you guys out on the road and see what God is doing in your lives and just watching the Holy Spirit at work. And so thanks to everybody who comes on up and hugs my neck and talks to me about the podcast and all the things that are happening in your life. It's just really a joy to uh, get to know you guys out on the road. Speaking of out on the road, I'm home for a couple of days and I leave for Peoria, Illinois, where I will be speaking with my good friend, Dr. Kathy Cook at the Hearts 2 Conference. It's not too late to register for that. So if you're anywhere near Peoria, come on out. And then the weekend after that, my women's conference, Faith That Speaks, will be at God Speak Calvary Chapel just outside of Los Angeles in Thousand Oaks, California. Uh, this event has been on my heart for many years, and uh, it's my heart to really teach you to have a faith that speaks. And all throughout God's word, we see a defense given for why our faith should not be hidden under a bushel. Our faith should be a faith that speaks. So the weekend of the 13th and 14th, we will be coming to Godspeak Calvary Chapel uh, with my friend Kathy Barnett, who has an amazing, amazing testimony, a story of God's grace and mercy in her life. And also my friend Elizabeth Johnston, who has a powerful story of just getting off the bench and onto the battlefield. So you guys are going to be really encouraged. I promise you this is a great time to get your ticket for Faith that speaks at Godspeak Calvary Chapel the 13th and 14th of March. Well, you guys, are you guys watching the news? I hope that you are. Have you been watching the Democrat debates at all? I mean, it the last one, right, uh, was a kind of the one in South Carolina was sort of a disaster from start to finish. I mean, they these guys just kind of went after each other. My husband and I were talking about it and we're just shocked. We're, we really are that there is a straight up socialist slash communist running for office. And I actually heard Hillary Clinton said the other day that if Sanders gets the nomination, she'll back him. The Democrats have backed themselves so far into the socialist corner now that they just can't get out. Uh, I don't think they're going to be able to get out of it at all. I was reading on the news, and I'll I'll link back to some of these articles uh, today. The Hill said former Bi- Vice President Joe Biden in particular spoke over the moderators who attempted to cut him off on several occasions, insisting, I am not out of time. You spoke over me and I'm going to talk. It's just crazy. The whole thing was crazy. Uh, Gail Quip, 
Later, as Biden attempted to break in again, moderator Gail King said, I promise, Mr. Vice President, we will get to you, to which Biden responded, you keep promising me that, but you never get to me. And this is kind of how it went all evening long. I watched, you know, like I said, for just a few minutes, and I was thinking, the moderators are journalists. Well, quasi-journalists, but they're definitely not referees. <laughs> That's kind of, I mean, I felt like, man, five of the candidates on the stage were in just massive, desperate mode. And uh, it was kind of a slugfest from the very start. But, oh, my goodness, you guys, pay attention to what is happening in the Democratic Party. It's no longer Republican versus Democrat. It's Republican versus Socialist. It truly is. I listened to Bernie Sanders uh, give Fidel Castro a pass the other day. It's insane. And so uh, as you guys are watching this stuff, be praying because we got there's a lot of stuff going on in the culture right now, and we need to be uh, talking about it. So keep in mind, tomorrow is uh, Super Tuesday, and uh, ahead of Super Tuesday, we're going to be finding out a whole lot about what's going to happen for the Democratic Party in the upcoming election. It's a foregone conclusion, obviously, that uh, Trump will be the nominee for the Republicans, but man... This is just bananas. I'm watching it, and I, I honestly just can't believe. I think it's kind of a bad night. You know, every time these guys have a debate, I'm embarrassed for them. But one thing is for sure, uh, there's definitely change in the air. There's definitely a change in the air. We've been talking a lot about the politics of socialism and the politics even of communism and the Democrats' unwillingness even to pass a law protecting infants that are born alive after botched abortions, which they still are failing to do, incredibly failing to do. And I think as we watch this stuff play out, it's a really good opportunity for us just to be teaching our children about the history of our nation, teaching our children about the history of socialism, where did it come from? Why are we even talking about it in the culture right now? It's astonishing to me. And yet we are. And I think a lot of it's because we just straight up do not know our history. So uh, the other thing that's been happening is that Trump is finally going after sanctuary cities. And I've been watching this also because, again, we have uh, like the law in this nation kind of upended and turned on its ear. And the Trump administration can withhold millions of dollars in law enforcement grants from these so-called sanctuary jurisdictions because they're refusing to cooperate with immigration authorities. This ruling came down from a federal appeals court last Wednesday, and the decision, which was handed down by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit in Manhattan, conflicted with three other appeals courts, which had previously previously ordered the administration to release the grant money to some jurisdictions. Uh, I read the New York Times article saying that this decision is, quote, a total break on what has been a unanimous decision from courts and judges across the country that this is illegal. So a handful of states, New York, Connecticut, New Jersey, Washington, of course, Massachusetts, uh, Virginia, they sued the U.S. government after the Department of Justice announced in 2017 that it would withhold grant money from localities that denied federal immigration authorities access to jails and other things. So it's kind of, there's a lot at stake coming up in this election, and I'm going to continue to turn your eyes to uh, just just to try to say, let's keep our eye on the ball. Let's keep our eye on the ball. We want to be talking about uh, the president's ability to appoint judges in the culture right now. We want to talk about abortion. Uh, Ali Stuckey tweeted last week, I heard candidates gave Bible verses 
as their life mottos. And by candidates, she means Pete Buttigieg, the open homosexual who is, uh, quote, married to a man who, by the way, tried to talk a 10-year-old into coming out on the stage the other day. Unbelievable. And he, along with Elizabeth Warren, basically pandering for the evangelical vote by quoting John 3.16, right? And she said, uh, listen, dudes, quoting John 3.16 is not going to make us forget about the baby murder. And I would like us to keep this sort of front and center as we talk about what's happening in the culture today, because it has never been more important than it is right now. And you know that I have been unabashedly supportive of our president, of President Trump. And I know it's cost me some listeners, and I know some of you burnt my book in protest and whatever. Uh, And I want to address something that uh, a listener said to me via my Instagram page the other day, she said, Heidi, we voted with a write-in in 2016 and we will do it again. Our pick may not win, but we voted to tell the government that we aren't with the way things are going and we want the write-in to speak for us. Now, people who put write-in candidates, of course, you guys, we were supposed to vote our conscience, right? But can I just take it a step further and say we should be voting for our convictions And uh, I loved some of the responses. Olivia said, I completely understand what you are saying, but there are many men in the Bible that God chose to be his disciples and be part of his kingdom, even though they weren't upstanding citizens or moral people. God always has a plan. And I said to this woman, listen, I know people who know President Trump personally, and I can assure you God is in the in at work. He's at work in the lives of the people that are closest to the president. And what we see from a distance And what we think we know about somebody's personality and about the condition of somebody's heart should not be informing our vote. Policy should be informing our vote. And I thought, man, we need to be voting for candidates who are going to protect our freedom, protecting our homeschool freedom. When we vote for a third party candidate, it really does harm our chances of keeping uh, President Trump in office. And I think that's absolutely true. I'm going to end with one other comment on this particular topic that came also on my Instagram page. So if you guys aren't following me on Instagram, Heidi St. John on Instagram, I love to have these conversations there, sort of keep things moving. Uh, She said, in the last election, I did the same thing. I voted for an independent for the exact reasons you stated. This year, however, I will be voting for Trump for his policies, specifically on saving preborn children. What happened for me, was it thanks to Dennis Prager, I understand that Trump is not my savior. Jesus is. Trump is not my kid's role model. My husband and I are. He's not my priest or my kid's teacher either. I also homeschool and we love our church. Trump is doing the job he needs to do to keep the country truly free. And if that's not enough, I ask you, would you ask a fireman pulling you out of a burning building if he was, a, if he was morally sound and worthy before he saved you? That's a great question. But I just want to just encourage you guys, do your homework. Find out about the policies that the administration is pushing and then pray for the president and the people who are around him. You guys, I mean, really, it's going to be President Trump or a socialist. President Trump or a guy who would say, listen, your babies can be aborted up to nine months. I'm going to talk your 10-year-old into uh, becoming a homosexual in front of all kinds of people. I mean, it's crazy town. What's happening in the United States right now, and I believe we need to take a stand. And this, this, uh, this odd—it's very odd to me. Uh, Christians who have this what what feels to me to be kind of an excuse to say, "Hey, I'm I'm so moral that I can't 
lower myself to vote for someone who's not moral like I would like him to be like President Trump. And we completely ignore what he's doing for the pro-life movement. We ignore what he's doing for trade in this country. We ignore that he's protecting our immigration law and coming against sanctuary cities. Uh, we ignore the the booming economy. I mean, good grief. Uh, the country's actually doing really well under the president. And we're going to throw that away and give it to a socialist potentially. Let's just let that sit in for a second. All right. Well, that was fun. So I'm going to tackle another topic today. Uh, I really appreciate you guys asking me to continue to talk about politics. I get your comments. You guys can send them to me at HeidiStJohn.com forward slash mailbox Monday. You fill out those forms. We do read them. That's how we determine which questions we're going to be answering here at the podcast. Uh, The next question came from a whole bunch of you. uh, And frankly, I've been ignoring you. So many, many of you asking me about the Enneagram. And frankly, I didn't want to do my homework on it. The topic kind of frustrated me. uh, And I didn't, I didn't understand what the Enneagram was. And I keep hearing, you know, good Christians on both sides of the debate over the Enneagram. But I thought, you know what, I'm gonna go ahead. And I'll just, I'll just tackle it uh, in the best way that I can. Again, not thus saith the Lord, but just explaining what the Enneagram is and kind of my take on it, where I think we're going, where I think we're going and where I think uh, we might want to be careful as Christians. So if you don't know, basically the Enneagram is a personality test. It puts personalities into categories and they classify human personalities into typologies basically of nine, what they would say are interconnected personality types. And I love personality tests. Uh, I did the Myers-Briggs when I was in college. And to me, this is another sort of another Myers-Briggs. And some proponents of the Enneagram, uh, they attribute it to the Desert Fathers, to uh, Sufi mystics, uh, to the Chaldeans, other ancient groups. This thing goes way, way back. And I'll tell you why I'm, I'm a little bit Uh, I'm not a huge fan. I'll just say it that way, but I'm not so much of a not fan that I would say you all are sinning. If you're doing the Enneagram, I'm just going to urge you to be very, very careful. The earliest mention of the Enneagram is found in the writings of a Russian occultist uh, named P.D. Auspensky, who attributes it to his teacher, the Greek American occultist, George Jordoff. I'm not even sure how you say his last name, but this dude considered the Enneagram a symbol of the cosmos, but he made no connection with it to personality types. That part was left to another occultist, his name was Oscar, to connect the Enneagram to personality. Oscar claimed to have discovered the personality meaning of the Enneagram when it was taught to him by the archangel Metatron while he was high on mescaline. I'm just going to let that let that sit. Now, this dude, Oscar uh, Ichazo, I think is how you say his last name, but I'm not sure. Nobody quote me. Uh, he, some, One of his students was a Chilean-born psychiatrist named Claudio Naranjo, who was another occultist, and he was the first to connect the nine points of the Enneagram to nine basic personality points. I guess one of my beefs with it, like they come up with, these are the nine. Well, it's such uh, it's such a, an arbitrary number. Why not five? Why not 12? Why not 15? Why not seven? Uh, and you'll kind of see why in a few minutes. But there, uh, but he was also an occultist and he was, uh, looks like he was the one to connect the mention of the Enneagram 
to some ancient sources. In the 1970s, students of Nanjaro spread the Enneagram to various Catholic communities, especially in mystical and contemplative circles. And some of the promoters of the Enneagram there include the former Jesuit Don, Don Riso and a Franciscan friar named Richard Rohr and late Benedictine nun Suzanne uh, Zurcher. So there's a lot of this in Catholic circles too. But as I did my research on the Catholic Church and the Enneagram, it looks to me like there's a huge divide in the Catholic Church among whether or not this is something that they should even have anywhere near them. And so why are why are some evangelicals enthusiastic about the Enneagram? Well, the Gospel Coalition says this, although Catholics have been debating concerns about the Enneagram for decades, it has only become popular in evangelicals in the past few years. While it's impossible to say why it has become such a hot fad, there are a few factors that may have led to its use. One, a need for a simple classification tools. In the 1970s, people would say, I'm a Libra. They would refer to their, they would refer to their astrological sign. In the 1990s, people were likely to say, I'm INFJ, which referred to their Myers-Briggs personality type, which I told you at the beginning of the podcast is what I did when I was in college. And frankly, you guys, I'm fascinated by personality tests. I I think it's interesting uh, to say, oh, that makes sense about me. Yes. You know, I always come out the lion. You know, I'm always the one who's um, a leader. And so I'm always like, please tell me I have a soft spot in my personality. (laughs) somewhere, right? And so I just think they're interesting. Anyway, in each case, individuals wanted a simple way to convey information about their personality to others and also to identify personality traits of other people. Like Myers-Briggs and astrological signs, the Enneagram allows people to convey a significant amount of information about their personality in a compact way for people who speak the same cultural code. Now, I hear this all over the place now. People say, yeah, I'm a I'm a nine or I'm a two with a wing, whatever. I don't actually understand because I've never taken the test. Uh, but I think that it's a largely, I agree with the Gospel Coalition, uh, it looks like this is kind of coming in to replace the Myers-Briggs, right? So the popularity of the Enneagram among evangelicals appears to coincide with the downfall of the Myers-Briggs personality assessment. Although still commonly used in corporate settings, the general public has become more aware that Myers-Briggs is generally considered pseudoscience because of the lack of evidence the test or its classifications have any scientific validity. And honestly, I think the same thing is true of the Enneagram. Nobody get mad. All right. Critics of Myers-Briggs frequently point out that it's too simplistic to measure personality and fails the standard reliability. For example, when retested on a a later date, up to 50% of the test takers will be classified into a different personality type. As one critic noted, the Myers-Briggs, quote, has about as much insight and validity as a BuzzFeed quiz. Still, I took it and I liked it. So whatever. The Enneagram seems to have stepped up to fill the role once reserved for the Myers-Briggs personality test. So another thing that, uh, and there are lots of, you know, reasons why, you know, um, I'll link back to this article in the show notes today. You guys can read it. I'm actually going to link back to six or seven articles that I found. Some of them are going to, uh, conflict with each other. So you're going to have to do your homework and I'm going to say, hey, pray about it. Be discerning. All right. So why are some evangelicals opposed to the Enneagram? So this is what I thought was so interesting. Evangelicals who favor the Enneagram tend to be younger, 
and do not know or downplay its history. So I think that's really true. Most people that I've talked to about this don't know the history of the Enneagram. And frankly, they don't want to hear it. It's like, you know, it's like watching people go into college campuses and they have a particular point of view. And even though they might be wrong, they're not interested in anybody else's point of view. And I think that that's partly true of uh, those who support the Enneagram, but don't know its history or they do know it and they downplay it. Uh, They might consider it's just another personality type like the Myers-Briggs. In contrast, evangelicals who oppose the Enneagram tend to be older that'd be me, and associate the Enneagram with the occult or with the Catholic spirituality movement. Those who oppose it are likely to have first seen books on the Enneagram in the New Age section of the bookstore. Now they're likely to be in self-help or psychology section. The symbol also is reminiscent of the pentagram, which is associated with various occult groups from Wiccans to Satanists. And I will say that was my very first red flag. When I saw the pentagram, I was like, eh, not for me, not for me. So there's a lot of, I mean, there's so much in here, you guys. Uh, But I think we should be careful because while the Enneagram itself is not ancient and typological personalities and classifications have been around for a long, long time, Uh, since the era when Nehemiah was rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, right? And during that period, the Greek physician Hippocrates was advancing his proto-psychological theory about the, quote, four temperaments, right? The father, this guy, the father of medicine, he's the reason why doctors take the Hippocratic Oath, identified four fundamental personality types. You guys have heard these, right? Sanguine, choleric, melancholic, and phlegmatic. And he believed that they were influenced by the four humors, Blood, phlegm, yellow bile, and black bile. Did you guys know that? True story. I think if someone would have told me that, I wouldn't have wanted to take the the uh, the test. I just think it's so weird. It's anyway. It's very, the whole thing is very weird. I liked the test that that uh, classified people as otters and golden retrievers. Golden Retrievers. All right. The Gospel Coalition goes on to say that while doctors no longer attribute our temperament to our bodily fluids. Hello. The idea that our personalities can be mapped into basic categories has lived on. In the late 60s, Tim LaHaye, the best-selling co-author of the Left Behind novels, sold a million copies of a book that claims our temperaments were still best classified as sanguine, choleric, melancholy, or phlegmatic. I wonder if he didn't know that these were based on the four humors, blood, phlegm, yellow bile, and black bile. I bet he didn't because I didn't know that either. Throughout the ages, Christians have latched on to such typologies, so it's not surprising that evangelicals would be attracted to the latest variation. Still, it raises the questions of whether we should be concerned because of the Enneagram's occultist origins. And this is kind of where... uh, I landed. We definitely should be concerned when the Enneagram is being used, as many Catholics have, as a form of Gnostic-based numerology. We shouldn't be seeking divination from a tool that was developed by someone who claims it was handed to him in a vision from what sounds suspiciously like a demon. And when the Enneagram is used simply as a diagnostic tool for personality classification, then the question, well, should we be doing this or not, becomes less clear. So here's the bottom line, you guys. Despite its origin, there might be enough of the Enneagram that remains useful or at least not harmful. And if that's the case, we should leave the issue up to the conscience of the individual Christian. However, we should always proceed with caution 
and treat the issue like Paul treated meat sacrificed to idols. Remember this out of Romans 14? If using the Enneagram causes our weaker brothers to stumble, then we need not to use it. If they begin to think that new age oriented tools of self-discovery are also legitimate, then we should be willing to abandon the Enneagram altogether. If the Enneagram were another version of what color is your parachute or strengths finders, that'd be fine, said Kevin DeYoung. But it has been from its inception, whatever that was, infused with spiritual significance. And therein lies the danger. So I took the strengths finder test. I've done the what color is your parachute thing. And to me, the main difference between the Enneagram and those tests is that the Enneagram is infused with spirituality from start to finish. So evangelicals should be concerned about the Enneagram. And the Gospel Coalition says evangelicals who are concerned about the Enneagram should probably worry less since it's likely a harmless fad that will fade away in a few years. And those evangelicals who are enthralled with the Enneagram should probably wonder why they're spending so much energy on a tool that has as much scientific validity as the four humors theory of Hippocrates and Tim LaHaye. So uh, I hope that encourages you guys at the very least, do your homework, find out about the origins of the Enneagram, and then you got to take it before the Lord. We need to be discerning. And as I've said many times in the podcast, I am troubled by the lack of discernment that I see in the church today. Colossians chapter two, and I'll end the podcast today with Colossians two, eight to 10, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all and ruler and authority. Wow. So we got a lot to think about today, you guys, from politics to personality tests. I hope that you're going to bring these things before the Lord in prayer, and let's keep the conversation going. All right, so we filter everything through the grid of God's word and we're not afraid to talk about this because we know that the antidote to darkness is to shine a light, the light of God's word onto every situation that comes into our lives. I appreciate you guys listening as usual. Please leave reviews for the podcast over at iTunes and sign up today at momstronginternational.com because our brand new Bible study on the book of Luke starts today. And you guys know, I am so excited about this because uh, we're seeing, there's 15,000 of you over there now at the scripture writing challenge. And my goal here is to get all of you guys studying the Bible with me. And I've been studying the Bible most of my life. My grandparents introduced me to the story of a snake in a garden. And soon after that, I read about a man named Noah, a man who loved God in a culture that had abandoned him. And through the pages of the Old Testament, I came to see my own need for a Savior. And in the New Testament, that Savior appeared, Jesus, the fulfillment of God's promise. And so this month, we're going to study the Gospel of Luke. And for generations, the church has had a tendency really to focus on Mark's Gospel as the earliest record of Jesus' life. And because of this, I think it's easy to overlook the book of Luke, but we don't want to do that because when we do, we can easily miss a precious look into the life the heart, and the ministry of Jesus. Did you guys know that thanks to the book of Luke, we have the story of Jesus and Zacchaeus, right? It's hard to forget that encounter, isn't it, between Jesus and this little man, 
right? Could you, can you guys just imagine? So at this month at Mom Strong International, we're going to take a deep dive into the book of Luke's gospel. And I think it's time because 35% of Luke's gospel is found in no other source. So in this uh, study, in the book of Luke, we'll meet Zacchaeus, visit the home of Mary and Martha, see the resurrection of a widow's son. Only in Luke can we find the parables of the good Samaritan, the prodigal son, the Pharisee and the tax collector and others. So the gospel of Luke is a precious look into the life of our savior, the fulfillment of God's promise to his people many years ago and the hope of the world today. So rejoice with me, you guys, as we study this together at MomStrong International. You are loved and God is still at work. Thanks for listening today, everybody, and I'll see you back here on Wednesday. For more encouragement, visit me online at thebusymom.com.